Hello, and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Florcruz. Once confined to central China, the coronavirus outbreak has truly become a global catastrophe. At present, the world's attention is focused on the hardest-hit areas, like Italy, Spain, and here in New York City, where public health systems and the economy are under extraordinary strain. In China, where the outbreak began, life is slowly returning to normal. But the repercussions of the lockdown on China's economy, politics, and relationship with the United States are likely to reverberate for long after the virus itself is conquered. In this episode, we bring you a discussion of COVID-19 in China with Kevin Rudd. He's the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute and former prime minister of Australia. Rudd spoke with Asia Society Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski in an online program, which of course is the format for all our programs now. He began by assessing the short- and medium-term outlook for the Chinese economy in the wake of the coronavirus. Uh, The central Chinese leadership under Xi Jinping has proclaimed this a people's war, proclaimed himself to be the people's leader in fighting this people's war. Uh, And as of about the third week of February, uh, various levels of victory were being proclaimed. Um, That is very much a, a modern Chinese political tradition under the Chinese Communist Party. However, there's one tempering fact in all of that. Uh, We've observed, of course, that Xi Jinping has uh, made his own visit to Wuhan. Um, But as many China analysts have pointed out, we still do not have a return to school or universities resuming classes. Why do I say that? And why do other China analysts point to this point? Because there's no way in the world that however rubbery official statistics may turn out to be, that any Chinese leader is going to put at risk children or put at risk young people because they are the family's principal assets for the future. And so therefore a key barometer for us all to observe is what happens with return to school and return to universities. Uh, That I think uh, will be critical for us to watch. I've seen very early reporting from some of the Chinese provinces of a very partial return. Um, But this is, I think, a core factor to observe. Secondly, if you look at the official data, China has proclaimed that as of yesterday, uh, that there were no new cases uh, in China, or at least no no additional mortality in China. Um, Whereas we can always challenge the absolute nature of Chinese statistics, it's very difficult for the Chinese authorities to misrepresent trend lines. And I think it would be unfair to them to say the trend line towards recovery does not exist. It does exist, whatever qualms we may have about the absolute nature of um, individual Chinese numbers. But however, there's a caveat to that as well, as evidenced by the most recent China media reporting. And that is China's concern, uh, both uh, for East Asia and the China itself, about a so-called second wave effect arising from people returning from abroad to China. Uh, and you see this spiking in China's media coverage in the last Uh, 72 hours. In fact, various authorities in Shanghai and in Beijing uh, have now been imposing mandatory uh, quarantine for anyone returning from abroad. Um, And of course, the response to that is uh, variable in various cities across the country. But there is an acute anxiety about possible second wave effect. Um, Finally, on the virus itself, uh, and I uh, attribute this reporting to um, a friend and colleague of mine, Bill Bishop, who produces a great site on China called Sinocism. Um, and uh, Bill picked up a report in the last 24 hours uh, pointing to China's work on the question of reinfection. 
Uh, as you know, for those studying the virology of this, uh, this is a critical uh, question. Um, and a Chinese uh, test with rhesus monkeys, uh, chimpanzees, has indicated so far, according to the Chinese reporting, no second round infection, even when chimpanzees are re-exposed to the virus. I simply draw that to people's attention. So that's on the virus itself. Let's turn now to the economic impact so far. Uh, this has been a disastrous hit on the Chinese economy. You cannot um, gild the lily on this at all. Uh, a quick uh, rendition of some of the data. Industrial output down 13.5% in January, February. Private fixed capital investment down 24.5% in January, February. Um, in terms of um, uh, the property development uh, sector, down 16.5% in January, February. Some property development firms now offering immediate 25% discounts on sales. Um, unemployment, even the official figures, has gone from 5.2% to 5.7% in February. Um, so that is simply by way of some of the indications. As I said, the international ratings agencies are projecting that China's overall growth rate in 2020, assuming the, the bounce back we have talked about before, Tom, uh, will not get uh, anywhere above 3%. Again, the trajectory is quarter one, bad, quarter two, really bad, quarter three, big bounce back, uh, quarter four, uh, restabilization. Let's look at some of the measures. Um, the measures the Chinese have adopted in the last 24 hours are of a large order of magnitude. Uh, the one that we have seen a range of measures so far in taking the taxation and regulatory burden of Chinese firms, um, that is important. Uh, secondly, uh, an instruction to China's financial institutions to forbear um, loans. Uh, to Chinese corporations impacted by the virus for a six-month period, indicating how serious this is. Though we have differing reports from around the country, the extent to which that loan forbearance is being universally applied to all coronavirus-affected firms. Um, and then thirdly, in the last 24 hours, a statement that um, local government authorities in China have been going to be issued with $400 billion US uh, worth of... Um, local government bonds to fund local infrastructure projects. To put that in perspective, Chinese GDP is about 14 trillion. When you start talking about 400 billion, you're looking at two to 3% of GDP. Um, I think we're going to see um, a lot more by way of Chinese stimulatory response. So in overall net terms, uh, what do we say? Uh, we say there's a trend line towards virus recovery. Number two, we say there is an acute uh, public uh, policy consciousness of reinfection from returning Chinese from abroad, uh, primarily returning Chinese. And thirdly, um, the stimulatory response to the crisis in the first quarter so far has had multiple arms to it in terms of uh, corporate loans, corporate tax and regulatory relief, and also local infrastructure investment. So my projection would be, based on the evidence we have so far, is that the Chinese economy right now is in recession, probably will remain in recession in the second quarter. Though remember, China is ahead of the global curve here. So it may be in China we see a much bigger hit in quarter one, uh, less of a hit in quarter two, uh, and then a much bigger, a big bounce back again in quarter three. 
On balance, that's how I see it at this stage. One final caveat, Tom, is this. 42% of China's uh, economy is from the traded sector of the economy. That is imports and exports. Imports and exports are going to be massively hit uh, in terms of demand from China's near neighbours, as well as demand from the United States, Europe, and other countries as well. Uh, so uh, we are therefore going to see that impact drilling down into the Chinese economy as a drag effect right across uh, the 2020 financial period, in which case it places an absolute premium on domestic stimulatory measures which are not trade and export or investment contingent. On balance, therefore, I think that by the time we get to the third quarter, absent any second wave effect, which the authorities are desperately engaged in trying to prevent, uh, we are likely to see a level of Chinese recovery but I'd be very surprised if the real economic growth rate for China in the year 2020 is anything above 3%. So, Kevin, these, needless to say, these are uh, uh, you know, nightmarish problems for any leader. They're big problems for Xi Jinping. And, uh, you know, for years, you and others who watch China uh, uh, from around the world have, uh, have said um, that, you know, the real estate bubble might burst, other things might happen. At some point, China was going to face these kinds of economic problems. Of course, nobody could have forecast uh, uh, the reason or the severity uh, of them as you've just laid out. So let's turn to domestic politics. Xi Jinping also and, and, and his, uh, uh, his, his fellow leaders in China took some hits in the early days of this crisis. Uh, across Chinese social media for a lack of transparency, for silencing those who gave the first warnings. Uh, it's also the case that Xi Jinping uh, and the Chinese have been given some credit, including from some global public health officials, for uh, their actions later on. But maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the political implications uh, for Xi and the leadership, whether uh, from all this economic hardship that is coming, uh, that you've just laid out, uh, or for that matter, from from these other uh, uh, these other problems that, that that he faces. Well, Tom, I think uh, when we look at uh, the political impact domestically in China, um, the debate um, centres on two or three factors. The first is uh, the problems which arose in the initial reporting of the virus from Wuhan itself. Um, the second is uh, the adequacy of the initial measures in suppressing it. Um, and thirdly, let's call it the effectiveness of the subsequent series of measures taken uh, in uh, what bordered on a virtual shutdown of one half of the country. Taking those briefly in sequence, uh, they uh, all hang on um, one continuing critique of Xi Jinping since he became uh, China's paramount leader in 2012-2013, which is, uh, has been too much centralization of power. Uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, whether it's at the Politburo level, the Central Committee level, the provincial government level, or the apparatus of the Chinese state, uh, that uh, there has been uh, a great emphasis on adhering to central political directives as opposed to local administrative agencies simply doing their job without fear of central political retribution. Now, that's the underlying critique which existed prior to this crisis erupting. 
So then having that as our background, then let's go to the three points I raised before. The major Chinese political sensitivity arises around not just the origin of the virus um, in what we assume to be uh, in and around the wet markets of Wuhan itself, uh, in the initial uh, animal to human transfer, although the scientists will still uh, reach conclusion on that in due course. But associated with that uh, is the initial failures in notification uh, to the center. Now, China runs a highly centralized propaganda apparatus, as we know. But what I find interesting is that in the recent reporting in the last 24 hours, through um, a, a brilliant Chinese language magazine called Caixin, C-A-I-X-I-N, um, which has uh, done some analytical work. Again, I would draw people's attention to the presentation of this by Bill Bishop and his uh, work in Sinicism, um, whereby um, they have concluded uh, in their own investigatory work that there was an abject failure of the system uh, at a local level to deploy the direct, what's called the direct reporting arrangements that were put in place after the SARS uh, experience of 2003. Uh, these, according to the Caixin report, were highly complex, detailed arrangements, um, and that they were uh, very much geared uh, to uh, how um, any appearance at a local level of pneumonia cases in excess of three individuals, which could not be attributed to regular pneumonia, uh, had to be automatically transmitted to the centre. Whereas what the Caixin investigation indicates is that in fact this information was suppressed at a local level. In fact, as a manifestation in this most acute case of the systemic problems that I referred to earlier about the centralization of uh, authority and decision-making power. That's a critical point. The related one is uh, both populist but real, the tragic death and uh, life circumstances of Dr. Li Wenliang uh, the young 34-year-old uh, doctor at the front line of this outbreak in Wuhan, uh, who was uh, formally censured uh, by the Public Security Bureau authorities for making trouble um, back in um, uh, December, January, uh, himself uh, then uh, having to uh, still work at the front line. He then contracted the virus and as a very young man, tragically died. Now, this... Uh, went off, as they say in Australia, like a rocket um, across uh, Chinese social media. And so Li Wenliang personal case, plus the Caixin investigation, are really important factors in the overall political dynamics of this debate about the initial management of it. Secondly, in terms of the longer term, as it were, suppression measures, uh, despite uh, the uh, apparent brutality of some of those measures, I think it's fair to say that across China there has been a general commendation uh, from people who are not necessarily uh, always friendly to the political system there that these have been brutal but effective in, as it were, changing the trajectory of the virus. So what at present you have uh, is uh, those two factors alive in Chinese politics. A third one impacting on Xi Jinping is, of course, uh, managing the economic recovery given that China's economic growth, uh, Tom, was already weakened by poor domestic economic policy decisions in the period of 16, 17, 18, and 19, 
when the reform program went into abeyance in China. And then you had the turbocharging negative impact of the US-China trade war in 18 and 19, which meant that China entered into uh, this coronavirus already in a deeply weakened economic state. But put those three factors together, where are we in Chinese politics? I think Xi Jinping has taken a hit politically, hence the reaction of the Chinese propaganda apparatus uh, to define him as the people's leader fighting the people's war against this virus. Um, the, uh, his leadership is vulnerable to the attacks on the failures of the initial notification system. He gets um, considerable marks in terms of the brutal effect of the containment measures uh, afterwards. Uh, and it's an open question as to how much the economy will rebound by, thereby, as it were, uh, dealing with his pre-existing vulnerability on slowing economic growth. So uh, thank you, Kevin. And before we move to the US-China uh, relationship and how it has suffered in, in this period, just a quick follow-up to what you just said, and this may be unanswerable. Uh, the, the effective ways in which the Chinese are able to monitor and uh, quickly delete things on social media, it did appear uh, that their leader was taking a beating in those early days. He is now styling himself as, uh, almost in a way that he did with climate change, and still does, as you know, a global leader who has successfully dealt with something. Do you think at this stage, and maybe it's too early to say that he comes out of this uh, weakens, strengthens, something in between? I think uh, going into the critical politics of 21 and 22, and for our listeners and viewers, 2021 is the centenary of the birth of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, people might say, so what? Well, anyone with a familiarity with China's attention to political anniversaries will know there is no so what about these things. It is major stuff. It's supposed to be about the total, final, comprehensive validation of the, uh, the wisdom of the Chinese Communist Party in rescuing China from uh, social and economic oblivion a century ago at the hands of foreign imperialists like you and me, Tom. Um, so that's what 2021 is all about. Of course, you couldn't ask for a worse set of circumstances going into 2021 than what has just happened with this particular virus. Uh, secondly, 2021 uh, and the lead up to it is also directly uh, relevant to a central uh, political development uh, in the uh, 20th Party Congress to be held later in 2022. That's the one which decides whether Xi Jinping's term uh, continues. Uh, last Party Congress, the 19th, as you know, uh, the decision was taken to abolish term limits uh, for the Chinese presidency. In fact, it was taken to the National People's Congress a few months after the Party Congress, I stand corrected. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, making it possible to continue in the country's highest office, that is the Chinese presidency, uh, is different from actually taking a decision to do that. And so um, those who are opposed to Xi Jinping's leadership will be seeking to maximise the internal critique, both about the centralisation of leadership, the cult of personality, uh, hence the... Um, uh, much of the analysis going into the people's leader fighting the people's war, which are direct analogies which, with which how Mao Zedong was depicted in the pre-49 period uh, in his uh, fight against um, uh, US imperialists uh, and, uh, and the dreaded nationalists on Taiwan. So that's why it's important. Um, paint's been taken off this guy. There will be a critique. Um, and I think it therefore is a real factor, but not yet 
anything approaching a terminal factor for Xi Jinping's uh, leadership uh, continuation after 2022. Those of us who read the tea leaves of domestic Chinese politics are going to have our work cut out for us uh, in the, um, uh, frankly, the 18 months ahead in trying to discern whether there will be any real shift on this question. Finally, I should say, Tom, there's been a lot of loose commentary around the world after the virus broke out about this meaning the end of the Chinese communist system. Um, and I've attracted some controversy around the world by saying that's highly improbable uh, for the simple reason that the Communist Party system is anchored in its absolute control of the security apparatus of the country. Uh, the intelligence apparatus, the uh, paramilitaries, uh, as well as uh, the two million strong PLA, all of whom are subsidiary to the party. Uh, so I am highly skeptical about claims that this will cause uh, the uh, uh, impending collapse of the party-based system. That's a separate question to whether there are leadership implications for Xi Jinping within it. At present, for him, I think they are difficult but manageable. Asia Society's headquarters in New York and offices around the world have temporarily closed in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. But that doesn't mean our vital work building bridges of understanding between Asia and the world have stopped. In the coming weeks, we'll be bringing you a series of web-only programs featuring insight from experts and thought leaders on the coronavirus and many other topics. To find out which programs are coming up and how you can watch, head to asiasociety.org online. And now let's get back to Kevin Rudd and Tom Nagorski. And let's uh, go to the U.S.-China relationship now, uh, where things were uh, pretty bad already, right? I mean, uh, and it's fair to say, I think that at least publicly, it seems we have a case now of things going from bad to worse. Uh, I'll take now just to borrow from a question from uh, one of our viewers on YouTube who, who asks, and in a way this frames just how bad the public uh, dialogue between the two countries has gotten. Uh, he asks, what do you make of Trump calling the virus a Chinese virus? And then certain Chinese spokesmen claiming that the virus came from the United States. Can, hula, can cooler heads prevail? And I would just add to the cooler heads prevail uh, point, Kevin, because all that uh, nasty commentary from corners in, in the United States and in China about the other, um, Putting that aside for a moment, uh, you certainly uh, would know that sometimes a crisis can bring uh, even uh, countries that are uh, at loggerheads as the US and China have been for some time uh, more closely together. And I wonder whether uh, much has been made, for example, of the fact that the Chinese produce uh, a great deal of the masks and ventilators and hospital equipment you name it, that now they, if uh, their numbers are correct, they may not need uh, so much anymore. And among the places, uh, people who might need it are right here in America. Uh, so uh, your thoughts on how bad things are and whether there's some, uh, uh, some silver linings that you could see coming down the road. Well, you're right to say, Tom, that uh, in the US-China relationship had already reached a nadir uh, through the events of um, 17, 18, and 19. Remember, it was at the end of uh, 2017 that the US administration finally declared that the age of strategic engagement between China and the United States had come to a close, that we were now formally into a new period of strategic competition. That was the end of 17. 
And in March of 18, the trade war was launched by President Trump. Uh, phase one of the trade war was finally brought to a conclusion. Uh, the White House signing ceremony, would you believe, only on about the 15th of January. Feels like it was an eternity ago. Uh, I attended that ceremony myself. Um, and uh, uh, phase two negotiations were to unfold uh, in uh, the year ahead. That's 2020. So against um, uh, that background of a structural deterioration in the relationship for a whole range of factors, which we can go into elsewhere, um, that was the state of things as of uh, when this erupted uh, in the public domain in January this year. Um, secondly, on your broad thesis about crises either bring countries together or actually fracture them entirely, uh, it's an interesting reflection on the developments of the last 20 years. What did the um, September 11, 9-11 uh, do in terms of America's relationship with the rest of the world and certainly with China? Uh, it brought those countries together. Uh, I remember very much uh, Jiang Zemin's reaction uh, when uh, he saw uh, the impact uh, on New York and on Washington from those attacks. Uh, secondly, if you look at the global financial crisis of 08-09, I was in office in that period and participated directly firsthand uh, in small working groups uh, with the President of the United States, the Chinese President, uh, the German Chancellor, the British Prime Minister, myself and others on crafting a common fiscal policy response, monetary policy response, trade policy response. As we sat round Gordon Brown's uh, uh, dinner table at uh, number 10 Downing Street, uh, working it out together. And our respective Sherpas were working like that on dealing with what we saw as an existential crisis. By the way, it's interesting reflection. At that time, um, the Chinese did begin privately and over time publicly query how the hell the United States had allowed that financial crisis to happen in the first place. Uh, in fact, um, if uh, there are Wang Qishan, the Chinese vice president, uh, is uh, quoted as having said uh, to Hank Paulson, well, Hank, uh, we thought you guys knew how to run the economy. What's wrong when the teacher fundamentally screws it up? Uh, that's my paraphrase of the Chinese. So, but I say that because uh, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to work out that the global financial crisis, which had a massive political and economic effect across the world, uh, began as an American financial problem uh, through the poor regulation of American financial markets, the repeal of Glass-Steagall in the late 90s, and the explosion of subprimes, subprime mortgages, and the deployment of mortgage-backed securities. So that by the time we had uh, the uh, crisis erupt with the single spark, uh, with the Lehman's collapse, um, then uh, we were ready to go. But the Chinese did not at that stage erupt into a public campaign against the Americans, having created uh, an exocet amidships to the global economy as governments and economies struggle to remain afloat around the world. So we come to the current crisis, the corona crisis, um, and in fact, uh, we have not seen the same dynamics at play at all. Uh, there was a perfect opportunity very early uh, when this developed the United States administration to reach out to the Chinese um, and say, let's have a joint US-China task force to wrestle this thing to the ground, deploy 
all of our scientists, all of our researchers, uh, all of our uh, immunologists, virologists, uh, and epidemiologists uh, in a common uh, plan of action. Now, that's, uh, I think, was entirely doable. But frankly, and I wrote about this at the time and said this is what the United States should be doing um, because uh, a failure to do so was inevitably going to cause uh, underlying Chinese resentments about being left in the stew um, by an indifferent America and an indifferent world. So what we've seen since then, uh, Tom, is this uh, emerging geopolitical blame game between the United States and China as to the origin of the virus, uh, and secondly, in terms of uh, whether the virus was properly um, handled in China in the first month to six weeks of the process, and thirdly, what China is now doing in terms of providing assistance around the world. On the origin of the virus, this is a very ugly uh, debate indeed. My view on these things, it should be just a matter for the scientists. Uh, most uh, Western epidemiologists uh, that I have read have concluded that this uh, animal-to-human transmission is most likely to have occurred um, uh, in uh, the markets in Wuhan sometime in November, December. Uh, but that's ultimately going to be subjected to uh, scientific testing. Um, as soon as um, President Trump decided to call this thing the Chinese virus, uh, you then had the Chinese propaganda apparatus swing into full uh, gear uh, and you had the remarkable statement by the Chinese foreign policy uh, spokesman uh, saying that, in fact, uh, through a tweet, in fact, that the virus could well have originated from the United States military. Now, that is the kind of um, escalatory uh, accusatories uh, which emerge at times like this, which fracture what is left of this US-China relationship but at a more practical level, impede the level of global and bilateral collaboration we need to defeat this thing. So that's on the origin of the, uh, the virus. Uh, and final point I'd make is China now uh, fully engaging its national and global propaganda apparatus, recognising that it has a problem in terms of uh, the uh, early management of the virus in China in the December-January period has now been working overtime to demonstrate to the rest of the world that the rest of the world should learn from China's experience, learn from China's containment mechanisms, and then providing uh, both medical teams and the rapid export of uh, face masks, surgical gowns, uh, masks, uh, other uh, protective gear, uh, personal protective equipment, plus ventilators for those countries and the world that need it um, particularly I see the emphasis going on to China's closest partners in the European Union. And so in overall terms, therefore, uh, despite the history of crises, uh, both in 2001 and 2008-9, bringing the US and China together, this one in 2020 has caused, in fact, an even deeper rift in the US-China relationship. Um, and my problem with that is not simply, isn't that bad in terms of geopolitics? My problem with that is it's actually bad in dealing with the real nature of the problem. Um, uh, for example, uh, President Trump responding to pressure from Macron uh, of France convened a G7 meeting with a common statement for the first time only four or five days ago about common principles for collaboration on vaccines and the rest. And here we are um, two-thirds of the way through March 
and what is already a two-month-long, um, uh, two-month-plus-long uh, global public debate, and still not yet a convening of a G20 summit, although that's going to now occur next Tuesday, at the urgings of various countries around the world. But not President Trump, and, the, and part of the reservation, I'm sure, on the part of the Americans is it's the forum which brings together the Chinese and the Americans. And the reason we invented this thing a decade ago was precisely that, to bring the Chinese and the Americans into a common global forum for dealing with demonstrable global challenges like a global financial implosion or, frankly, global climate change or global pandemics. Well, you, you've succeeded in depressing me completely now, Kevin, but that's okay. It is what it is. We have time for a couple of questions and there's some good ones coming in. You've mentioned just a moment ago uh, reminded us that you were prime minister during the global financial crisis. It's always nice to see how sophisticated our audience is, whether they are uh, watching us in this way or on stages uh, in, uh, in New York or elsewhere. Uh, but uh, others are aware that you were also prime minister during the H1N1 flu uh, pandemic. And so a question uh, from uh, an audience member tonight, uh, what lessons are relevant to the coronavirus pandemic and what would be your best advice for leaders uh, as they confront unprecedented public health uh, crises um, from your time as uh, uh, head of state during uh, that pandemic? I think uh, there are two matters I'd uh, raise there, probably three. Um, one is in terms of our national public health systems. Our national public health systems have to be robust they have to be engaged in preventative health programs. They have to be engaged in effective community-based medicine, not just in terms of hospital and acute care. Uh, and it's a huge, been a huge debate in my own country, Australia, about the level of investment in uh, these public health institutions and programs, including um, uh, telemedicine through effective broadband networks. Um, just as there have been debates in many other countries around the world, I think what we will discover once uh, the dust settles on this is that those countries with the most robust public health systems are likely to emerge from this crisis in a better state of repair than those who don't. Um, uh, second point I'd make is uh, in terms of um, the measures to be adopted uh, for dealing with um, uh, a coronavirus. My own personal conclusion, uh, having read the recent literature and reflecting on past experience, is that no government should ever engage in half measures. If you think you've got a problem in public health or in the economic impact, then go early, go hard, and go comprehensively. Um, I become somewhat uh, dismay when I see these marginal debates being had in various communities and countries around the world about whether it's too early to do X or too early to do Y. Um, I've always had a view in public policy uh, that after the event, I'm all open to be attacked for having overreacted. I never want to be attacked for having underreacted. In the global financial crisis of 08 09, uh, after the event, I was um, routinely attacked politically for having overreacted because we were the only country amongst the major advanced economies in the world not to go into recession. Uh, people thought, well, you just spent too much money doing that. Well, I think that view is now changing. 
So I'd say to any public policy officials around the world uh, who are looking at their current circumstances in the range of public health measures uh, from personal hygiene, social isolation, uh, lockdown, school closures and the rest, my overwhelming instinct is to be aggressive and comprehensive. Similarly, that's my instinct in terms of economic recovery. Far better to be accused downstream of having overreacted than underreacted. And finally, on the global institutions, um, what uh, really uh, aggravates me, uh, Tom, to use a polite term, non-Australian term, um, about uh, the international system is that following the experience of SARS, following the experience of H1N1, a number of us around the world um, have written comprehensive reports on the reform of global pandemic management. Uh, one of the other hats I wear in New York is I'm chair of the International Peace Institute. And in the review of the Independent Commission on Multilateralism um, in 2015, 16, 17, which I chaired, we produced uh, an overarching report on the review of the UN system in all of its elements, including its management pandemics, and produced a freestanding report on how to improve the global management of pandemics. And it contains quite specific recommendations on how to strengthen the World Health Organization. Uh, regrettably, um, it does not appear to me that any of those recommendations have been taken up despite the experience of previous pandemics or if they have been not taken up sufficiently. One of the essential dilemmas with the WHO is that it's a gathering of governments. Um, the problem with the Ebola crisis uh, in 2014-15 was that um, uh, the various regional conferences of the WHO did not allow the WHO centrally to activate its processes early enough because of local political sensitivities. Now, I'm not going to comment now on the nature of the WHO's engagement with the Chinese on this. Uh, all that evidence will come out in the wash. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, I'm concerned that earlier re recommendations and reflections, which many of us spent many months of work on, have largely been left to gather dust on the bookshelf. We can't afford to do this again. Once we're through the coronavirus, for God's sake, you know, in terms of lessons learned, what, what needs to happen for the international community to learn a bloody lesson? Anyway, enough from me. Well, uh, we have a couple of minutes left. I'm going to twin two questions in one and see if you can give a quick answer to this one, Kevin, before we, we wrap. So these are both questions about the United States response. Um, given that it's such a make or break moment uh, for the United States, uh, as I guess it is for many countries, but the, the questioner, these are two now. How do Asian countries, and in particular U.S. partners, perceive the responses of the United States and China to the coronavirus? And then what can the United States do to prevent this crisis from further damaging its standing? I don't know if you can do that in one or two minutes, but over to you. Well, look, for all countries around the world, anyone uh, engaged with this program, and let's call it uh, wider Asia, East Asia, South Asia, and the rest, um, we need to bear in mind that everyone's national circumstances are going to have uh, commonalities across the region and the world, but some differences as well. So as an international community, let's think now about what's happening in South Korea and Japan, what's happening across the countries of Southeast Asia and Malaysia and Indonesia, 
which really uh, make uh, the news. Uh, what will unfold in Africa? What is unfolding in Latin America? Um, the fact that these are not in the Western world should be irrelevant for our international uh, solidarity at times like this. Which brings me to answer your question about uh, America, in my judgment, uh, squandering this uh, opportunity for appropriate international leadership. Um, in the rest of the world, America has been seen as pursuing an America first policy uh, on its handling of the coronavirus crisis. And in pursuing that coronavirus crisis uh, strategy domestically, having done it badly, that's kind of the bottom line here. Um, the denials uh, from the US president throughout January, throughout February, and in the first half of March, this was a serious crisis before he flipped in around about the 15th or 16th of March to saying we now have a pandemic on our hands, um, is, in my judgment, purely in terms of public policy, uh, leaving aside party politics, inexcusable in effectively preparing the American domestic uh, public uh, for the crisis which is unfolding for them. And I feel for this deeply because I, as you know, Tom, most of the year I live and breathe and work among you. Uh, it's my community as well. Um, but secondly, in terms of America's standing in the world, leaving aside um, President Trump's mismanagement of this domestically, and it has been significant and comprehensive mismanagement, um, as you see reflected in the responses of various state governors across the United States, and the problem of the undersupply of testing kits and the inadequate preparation of additional uh, triage in the public hospital system in the United States. Beyond America's own domestic concerns, the world historically has looked to America for leadership in times of global crisis. There has been none. Macron finally got Trump to the table on a G7 hookup. Uh, others, led by Modi in India, uh, as well as uh, other G20 leaders, have, as well as uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, in Saudi Arabia, have brought together the G20. Where is America's global leadership on this? Uh, having a bilateral geopolitical smash up with China on how the virus came into being and who was responsible for what and kicking each other's journalists out, well, all's fair in love and war. Um, but the bottom line is it doesn't actually fix either the problem nationally or globally. So I conclude my uh, comments in this, uh, Tom, realising that our, our time has been reached by saying to all of our friends in the international community, um, we at the Asia Society uh, will do our best, um, do our best in terms of shedding uh, light, not heat, in these debates, uh, shedding light, not heat, on what public policy responses in health and public policy responses in, in economics are going to be most effective in navigating us through but then in the foreign policy wash-up of this, doing our best to provide cool heads to work our way through the future, rather than seeing allowing this to degenerate into a much more fundamental geopolitical crisis uh, of, uh, in other dimensions uh, once the corona crisis is put to bed. That'll do it for this week's episode of Asia In Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, and check out past episodes on our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast. Meanwhile, we wish you all the best. Stay healthy, stay safe. We're in this together. I'm Michelle Florcruz. See you next time.